You are listening to GNU World Order. This is Klaatu. I'll be your host today, as I often am. And in this episode, we're going to be going through, yes, you guessed it, all the packages that have been installed on Slackware Linux at install time. That's everything. Uh, it might not be on your system if you're not running Slackware, but you can probably find the stuff that we're talking about in your software repository if you're running Linux. And if you're not running Linux, listen in anyway, because this is really interesting stuff. This is These are all the little applications on a Linux system that we don't tend to think about. They're, they're those things that we don't use directly all the time, and so we just kind of forget that they're there, or we never have taken notice of them in the first place. Okay, so we're, we're about halfway through, maybe even, I, I dare say two-thirds of the way through, of this one package called linuxdoc-tools. And we have talked a little bit about DocBook, we've talked about ASCII-Doc, we've talked about a couple of different uh, documentation system, or rather um, markup languages like uh, DocBook and SGML. We've talked a little bit about Linux Doc itself, the command that converts uh, to the DTD, which we also spoke about in the previous episode, um, that is specific to this Linux Doc system. So we're getting kind of a good picture of, of, of what this package is all about, and it's it's all about taking this highly, highly precise markup uh, language, SG, SGML, of which I believe we established DocBook was more or less a subset of, and, and converting it into something, into a format that is useful for, for humans, and that is meaningful. And the next command in in the alphabetical list here is something called ONSGMLS. That's on SGMLS, I guess could be how you say it. Uh, there's no man page for this, but the dash H option serves to give us a little bit of insight into how to use it. ONSGMLS parses and validates an SGML document whose document entity is specified by the system identifiers SYSID, and it prints on the standard output a simple text representation of its element structure information set. So, believe it or not, that was a string of English words that form a complete sentence. Um, I know that's a lot to digest, and in in a way, I don't really want to talk too much about that, because this is all kind of the same thing, right? It's introspecting into XML, it's breaking down the structure of a document, it's converting it to something else, and so on. By now, I don't think that's the most interesting thing revealed about this package. I think what we're really looking at here is this this on sgmls command kind of gives us some insight into one of the main features of sgml and of docbook and of markup in general and, and even markdown to some degree to a lesser degree. Like markdown, as I've said before, it's got this great this great feature of being of of allowing you to have almost you're hiding in plain sight your markup. You know, you have this document that looks just like a normal text document like you'd see anywhere. And it just so happens that the way it's structured, predictably and reliably, means that it can be parsed very easily later. And there is some context now given to what is being parsed. For instance, if if something is uh, surrounded by, well, let's, let's use ASCII doc as our markdown a markdown-like example, just because that's kind of um, thematically appropriate here. Uh, if something is surrounded by underscores, then we know that it's italic. If something is surrounded by an asterisk on either side, then we know that it's bold. And if something is preceded by four dashes, then we know that it's a code block, and so on. That's a context about something that otherwise is just a jumble of, of letters and words and things like that. So one of the features of XML, and, and I guess SGML specifically, is that there is context baked into the markup. Things are explicitly identified, even when sometimes they don't apparently need identification. For instance, I've been working on this project re recently uh, that has a lot to do with LEGO bricks. Now, you and I know that LEGO, L-E-G-O, that's a trademark. There's no real reason for that to be important, that, that LEGO is a trademark. Um, but nevertheless, DocBook provides a tag that is trademark, the, the word trademark in, in, in angle brackets, that you can surround a word and identify that word as a trademark. Now, the side benefit of that is that you get the little cute little TM at the end of the word. That's, that's the benefit of using the trademark tag 
or that's the obvious benefit. When you render it, you get the little TM tag or the little TM sign after the word. But what if for whatever reason you thought, well, it'd be really neat to make all trademarks in this document render in in red. Well, then you can do that because all the trademarks in that doc document have been marked up. Or what if you said, I need to narrow in I, into all trademark words in this document and change them because we're no longer using Lego. We're now using the example knockoff brick. Well, you can do that because they're all tagged and so on. So you've got, you've got leverage, right? But you can go a step beyond because what if every time there's a trademarked Lego word, you wanted to, um, I don't know, link to a list of brick types online. Well, you could do that. What if uh, a mobile device came out, or maybe there's an app on a mobile device that lists all, that, that serves as just as a database, a visual database of all Lego bricks that have been uh, cataloged. What if we could hook into a trademark element in our document such that when we click on that in some interface, then it goes to that app and and references a specific brick. Whatever, I'm kind of making things up as I go. Uh, and, and more, maybe even a more realistic and sort of current one would be, well, what if we have a, a phone number in our document and we want to make sure that when people click that phone number, their phone app opens with that number typed into the thing and, and all they have to do is click call to, to contact that phone number. Without the explicit context of what this string of numbers actually is or what the string of letters actually represents, there's no way to programmatically treat that any different than any other thing. And there's that's that's a significant advantage, I think. And it, it's something that Markdown typically does lack. That would be, um, I mean, it, it's, I admit, it's kind of an edge case, you know, like the, the, the need to, on an everyday basis, look at every single type of word that's being typed in a document that that doesn't tend to come up all that often you can get by for weeks and never care about whether that string of numbers is a phone number or whether it's a, a date or, or whether it's just a string of numbers a software versioning or a, a, a um, rfc number you know who cares it's just you know you look at it you you read around the word for context and you figure out what that number is. The computer obviously doesn't typically have that advantage, and so marking things up explicitly gives a, gives you a lot of options at, when you need those options. And that, I think, is one thing that is truly evident here in Linux Doc, is that there are lots of things that are very specific to exactly what Linux documentation needs, like a system ID, or what were we looking at in the previous episode? Uh, it wasn't... Oh, the DTT, uh, with um, certain Unicode characters, I think it was, that had been typed in manually, some some entities that, that needed to be entered specifically for this this system. Although actually I think those were out of date and I don't think they actually are necessary anymore. But what do I know? I don't know. Character encoding is horrible. Um, and, and that's what this I think demonstrates is that there's a real real advantage to what is called semantics. You know, How is that word being used? What does it mean in that setting? Why is that word different here than it is somewhere else. And certainly in technology, there's a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot of words that we use in technology that have very different meanings in the real world. And it's important to know that in this context, that word has uh, an important job or is, 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 um, is conveying a specific set of, or a specific kind of information that's completely different than than what it might mean um, in in some other context. Okay, so that's that's really all I have to say about ONSGMLS. Um, as I say, in 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 reality, I think that uh, ONSGMLS is a great way to parse SGML, which I don't really typically do anything with. Um, let's see if what would happen if I ran it against. Um, I know just the thing to try. Yeah, here's a document. Now, this doesn't actually qualify for what it's what it claims to do, but we can I can at least see some output here. So I'm I'm pointing it at a docbook document. 
Uh, and yeah, sure enough, I'm getting a list of the the elements contained within this document. And that's pretty much what it's saying, that it's it's going to show me a simple text representation of its element structure information set. Oh, right. And that's actually why I got on that whole tangent about the semantics and the context. And that is that SGML, unlike, for instance, DocBook or HTML or, or other things, um, SGML well, and XML in general, really, but SGML, one of the big deals about it was and is that you can just create your own elements. There's no, you know, it's not a predefined set. Now, HTML, for instance, very much is. Like, you can't just make up your own tags in HTML and have web browsers understand what you want to have happen to those tags. You can't can't make up your own tags in DocBook. You can, but then you're not using DocBook anymore, and that's the point. And that's what these markup systems allow you to do, is is they allow you essentially to create your own domain-specific language, or markup language, and then process it the way that you want to process it. Okay, and, and ONSGMLS validates that for you. Um, okay, next up is OpenJade, which is a command to apply a DSSSL style sheet to an SGML or XML document. Um, this is a lot like XSLT proc, which I don't think we've talked about yet, right? Then surely not, because that would have been... Oh, it's not even in this package, so definitely not. Um, XSLT proc is, is great. I've mentioned it before. I won't go too far into it, because we're talking about open jade right now but open jade does basically the same thing except instead of with xsl it's doing it with this dsssl style sheet so it's it's pretty straightforward really it's open jade and then dash d i think means ddd dt or no it would mean dssl probably yeah dsssl underscore spec is what they're defining it as Okay, so openjade-d, and then I'll just point it to the little demo dsssl uh, file that comes on Slackware. That's slash user share sgml openjade-1.3.3-pre1 slash demo.dsl. For our output type, which is just dash t, we will go out to html. Openjade can go out to um, HTML, it can do that old RTF again, it can do text, it can do SGML, it can do XML, and a couple of other things. So I'll just, I'll go out to HTML because that seems like an easy target. And then I'll do dash O for output, um, I'll just do blah.html, and then I need to point it to the file that I want to convert. And for that I'm going to point it at, let's do, let's do something safe first. No, let's do something dangerous first. I'm going to do an example.xml file, and no, that, that fails. Okay, I wasn't sure if it would fail or not, because um, I think OpenJade also can do some XML, but I, I could be I could be confused. Uh, so then slash user slash share sgml slash openjade blah 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 slash demo.sgm, and demo.sgm is a file that is provided by OpenJade itself, so hit return on that. It doesn't take any time, really. And then we'll do a cat on blah.html, and that renders quite nicely. HTML link rel style sheet equals blah.css, body div class equals p, span class p, the first paragraph, close a bunch of stuff, the second paragraph, close a bunch of stuff, and that's it. That's the HTML file. So nice, nice, simple little demo there. Um, and and that's that's a common, that's kind of the common, I guess, workflow, we'll call it, for these, um, these tools like XSLT proc. You issue the command, you point it at your style sheet, you point it at the file you want it to uh, process, and then you give it an output file name. Same here with OpenJade. You do all of those things, you just you just marry the two things up. It, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. You think, okay, I want, I want that file to be run through that one, and I want the output to be to be over here. It just works. It just works like that. So that's OpenJade. Pretty straightforward little conversion tool. Um, okay, so next up is O. SGML2XML. I think you can kind of see where this is going. This is a... Ah, it's no man page. Okay, well, this is a um, conversion application to take the, out, the, the contents of an SGML document contained in sysid writes the equivalent XML. So if we do, once again, OSGML and then letter, uh, the number 2 XML and user share SGML... Oop, what did I do? Oh, I hit Control S instead of 
Okay. Um, SGML slash OpenJade, blah, blah, blah. And then I think, what was it? Demo SGM. Yep. Uh, and then I think it looks like we just, ha- yeah, we just have to give it, I better transfer into my demo folder for this one. Um, I think we just give it that. Yeah, we do. Okay. So I'm pointing it at the SGML file in user share and it spits out the conversion into just plain old XML into this uh, to standard out. So that's that's quite useful if you've got old documentation that is contained in SGML format and you need it in XML, that's the one to go to. OSGML to XML. Okay? OSGML norm. OSGML norm is what this one's called. Do a dash h after that. And it says that it prints to standard output a normalized document instance for the, or, uh, yeah, for the, uh, the SGML document contained in the concatenation of the entities with system identifiers, sysid. That's a horribly written sentence. Um, don't really know what this does, so we're gonna just point it again at that sample, that sample document in user share. Oh, I've lost it. I've lost that document somehow. Oh, there we go. OSGML norm. There we go. And that just output it to um, XML, but without the opening or closing XML tags. So I'll assume, I'll just, I'll believe them that that is how you get a normalized SGML format. Next up is a, a very mysterious one called OSPAM. O-S-P-A-M. No idea what that refers to, honestly. And if I do a file of backtick, oops, file backtick which OSPAM close backtick, it tells me that it's a, it's an executable, it's an actual executable file in user bin. But if I do OSPAM dash H, it just kind of hangs. If I do an S trace OSPAM dash H, it hangs at a read statement. So don't really know exactly sort of like what you're supposed to do with that really. Um, but I see a bunch of stuff in the strace output that it's reading, is looking at the uh, at a catalog in DSSL stylesheets-1.79. So I feel like it's it's trying to, you know, it's, it's referring to some, some, some backbone technologies there. So I feel like it's probably yet another conversion application. So let's just try to point it at that demo file yet again, OSPAM user share SGML open jade demo.sgm. And sure enough, it, it outputs the same thing as OS, what was it? OSGML norm. Yeah. Puts out the same thing, except instead of all capital letters, which is what OSGML norm did, this does the same thing with lowercase letters in the, um, in the tags. So that's a, a, a strange little, you know, I don't know if that's actually significant or if it's just, if it's doing something else that I'm not realizing and it just happens to also be outputting, you know, I have no idea. Okay, the next two are OSPCAT and OSPINT. They're both, uh, let's see, they're both sort of validation applications. They print either the concatenation of uh catalog elements or and or entities, uh, depending on which one you use, in a catalog file uh, or a system identifier uh, namespace, not namespace, but uh, within a system identifier, uh, sysid. And that's, uh, that's useful probably if you need to validate catalog files, I guess, um, which I've never done before, so I don't really know the significance of those uh, at all. Next one after those is RTF to RTF. Seems odd. RTF to RTF. Yeah, apparently it's programmed to post-process raw RTF generated by a mapping file. This manual page documents briefly the RTF to RTF commands. This manual page was written for the Debian GNU Linux project. Cool. Okay, so RTF to RTF is a program to post-process raw um, RTF. It's used by other programs uh, in SGML tools, and usually normal users do not need to use this program directly. Well, say no more. If I don't have to use RTF um, directly or at all, um, really the better. This apparently is quoted from the README in the source tree of this application. Quote, I'm not proud of this code. It's a hack foisted upon a hack nested within another hack or two. It sort of works well enough for my purposes, generating winhelp.rtf files for my documents, but it could definitely use a redesign slash rewrite. I'll skip over some stuff, and then it says, I shamelessly blame the RTF format for most of the hackery here. RTF is not a language like LaTeX or 
ROF, it's just a file format, so we can't rely on RTF to do even simple things like insert a paragraph break here only if the previous token was not also a paragraph break, and so on. It goes on and on like that. It's it's quite an interesting read. If you didn't believe me two episodes ago when I told you never to use RTF, by all means, look at the man page of an application called RTF2RTF and witness why other people have said the same thing. And for the record, I've never seen that before. It's just a healthy dose of confirmation bias granted to me by this odd collection of text processors. Time for coffee, I think. When we get back, we're going to eventually get to the one that I've been waiting for, XML2. That's X-M-L-T-O. Eventually we'll get there. But first, coffee. back. I've got coffee. Hopefully you do too. I've got a quite a special coffee uh, today. I received in the mail a package from Ken Fallon. You know Ken Fallon, maybe, from Hacker Public Radio, and I think I've probably mentioned him once or twice on this show before. But yeah, he sent me some coffee, which was really, really nice, and I broke into it a couple of days ago now. And I gotta admit, I was making it really, really poorly the first two days. It was kind of... I. I hadn't ground the coffee quite enough. I, I had a, a coarser grind than I probably should have. It was fine. It was nice. Like, I had no complaints about it. It was a nice, mild, mellow coffee, and I quite enjoyed it. But I, I had to grind another batch last night, and wow, is it good. I, I got... I, I ground it down really, really fine, and I've been making it in a couple of different methods. I, I used my percolator. I used the espresso... Um, coffee pot that Ken also sent with the coffee, and I use I, I used my uh, the plunger as we call it here in New Zealand, which you will know maybe possibly as a press where you're from, wherever you may be from. And yeah, it's just good. It's a good coffee. I'm having a Simon something. I don't have the package in front of me, and I've, I've already forgotten the name. Um, and he he sent me like four different blends or, or roasts from where he lives, which I guess is Amsterdam, apparently, or that's where he was visiting or something like that. I mean, I know he's in the Netherlands. I'm just not really sure if he lives in Amsterdam or somewhere near Amsterdam. Either way, it was quite a surprise, and I have been enjoying it quite a lot. Highly recommended. Okay, next up is sgml2xml-isoint. I think getting the idea osgml2, what is it, xml-isoint, that doesn't seem to be auto-completing for me. What am I doing wrong? Oh, just sgml. Yeah, SGML. And I'll point it at a, at a book file here. Um, and, oh, it doesn't know that because I've got a bunch of XML namespaces in there. Let me find something a little bit simpler to point it at. Yep, there we go. So it's translated uh, the the file to, um, to XML from actually XML. And I, I'm assuming that the big feature of this dash ISO int is that it can preserve entities within... Yeah, it parses and validates SGML document contained in in sysid and writes out the equivalent XML document. Um, no, it doesn't actually explain exactly what the dash ISO int adds. That's interesting. I would have kind of I would have expected some special explanation of that, but it doesn't have that. But there does look like there's a dash b flag or a dash dash encoding where you can tell it what encoding to use. Um, just not sure why. I guess the ISO int must be pointing to the ISO entities. I'm I'm assuming. I can only assume. All right. Next up is SGML diff. It finds differences in the markup of two SGML files. That's gotta be useful. Um, I'm gonna look at example.xml and I'm going to I'm going to type Emacs correctly this time. I'm gonna open it up and I'm going to I'm going to change let's see what, what can I change? How about link to xref xref link. There I've changed a, a particularly particularly nasty tag. Oh and actually here's a sim para and I'm gonna change that to just para. There we go. And I'm going to write it out as example2.xml. And then we'll do an sgml diff of example.xml. 
and example2.xml and see what it finds. Yep, sure enough, it finds the difference between ulink URL and link. It finds the difference between simpara and para. It shows the, the line number and the difference and everything, so it's, it's really nice. That is exactly, is exactly what one would want. That's fantastic. SGML diff, that's really, really nice. What that does, if you don't use XML a lot, sort of does what you might have to use XML starlet for, for instance. Or I guess maybe, I guess you could, could you do it with, no, I don't think you got it. Yeah, I think it would have to be XML starlet. That's the only way I know to do it. I mean, I guess you could do it with like awk or something, maybe. But yeah, so it's, it's, it's essentially a very easy way to look at just the markup part. You're, you're ignoring all the text. You're just looking at the tags. And that's that's pretty nice. Because those tags, I mean, that's what I've said about DocBook and XML in general. I mean, those those tags are not trivial things. You know, they, they, they can be difficult to ignore when you're looking through something. That can be very difficult. There's a little application called SGML Pre, which um, is, is quite poorly documented, apparently. Um, the the C also is for a complete description. See the header in the source archive because it's just like yeah. Look at the comments in the code for documentation. Um, but the Debian project, darn it, they documented this uh, as best as anyone can expect, I think. And once again, they they sort of begin a quote and they they list what this application claims to do itself. It says it filters. SGML according to conditionalizing markup. Argument value pairs from the command line are matched against the attributes of um, angle bracket hash if closed angle bracket and angle bracket hash unless closed angle bracket tags. Spans between if 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 um, if tags are passed through unaltered if there is no attribute mismatch spans between unless are passed if there is at least one attribute mismatch so this is literally a way to to parse sgml based on conditions i've never done that before i don't even know if it's legal this might be illegal um i don't know but i don't know i mean it seems legal it says this this lexer requires flex that sounds awfully official to me. But yeah, I've, I've never done that before. Never never had the need to, to do anything like that. That's very advanced, uh, fancy stuff, and I am uh, much simpler than that. I do not need my XML to contain conditional statements. But I can, I can kind of imagine why one would need them to be, to, to have conditionals in them. I, I can definitely see the use case for that, um, especially when you're programming for, you know, for cross-compiling something I can absolutely see why you might need to um, to have some conditionals in there. It seems kind of cool, but not for me. SGML SASP translates standard input using the specification in some replacement file and writes the result to standard output. The standard input must be in the format output SGMLS. Each replacement file must be in the format of an Amsterdam. Weren't we just talking about Amsterdam? That's weird. SGML parser, that's ASP, replacement file. This format is described in the ASP documentation. Duplicate replacements are silently ignored. The dash in option disables uppercase substitution, folding for names in replacement files, and so on. So, like, I have no idea what it's talking about here. No, no clue. It says to also see SGMLS, but... I don't have I, I don't have a man page for just SGMLS, so I don't know what that's referring to, um, and I don't know what the I don't know what a replacement file would be. I'm, I'm not really sure what they're referring to there. I don't know what a replacement file is. Uh, so this one is a little bit of a, a stumper for me. I'm not too sure what you're supposed to do with that. Um, if you've got if you've got um, experience with that, feel free to let me know how you use it. But certainly that's not something that I've ever used, and I don't believe I'm going to ever use it. It sounds like something that's um, it's probably not within my workflow by any means. A lot of this SGML stuff um, honestly qualifies for that. It's just not some stuff. It's not stuff that I really use all that all that often. All right, let's look at SGML. SPL, which is a simple pro uh, post processor for SGML. Apparently, it's a sample application to convert SGML documents to other formats. So this is you know, yet another conversion application, and the idea is that you would do 
SGML, SPL, some specification file containing Perl, and the input that it's accepting is something that you would send to it, like an SGML document that you might cat concatenate to it, and then you can output it to, for instance, LaTeX. So in a weird way, it's a front end, it seems, or well, I guess it's not a front end. It, it is. It's, it's exactly what it says it is. It's a sample application to demonstrate to you how you might write such an application, and that's definitely not something that I'm interested in. We're going to get into something a lot more interesting than that once we talk about XML2 and XSLT um, eventually. Okay, so SGML Witch is an application that identifies for you your sgml.conf configuration file. At least that's all I can tell that it is. I, I There's no documentation for it. Uh, there's no help option for it, as far as I can tell. It, it is. It, it simply does... It, it spits out slash etsy slash sgml slash sgml.conf. So I'm assuming that you're probably not really meant to use it yourself. You're probably used to, you're supposed to use it probably in a um, in a script. It's probably just a, a really simple way to find the configuration file that you you need to know, you know, whether it's present or where it's located or, or whatever. And it, it seems to work uh, as designed. Okay, now this this one's a little bit more exciting, I think. Oh wait, did I skip one? Hold on. I mean, just make sure I didn't skip one. Uh, what would that be? SGML2 ISO, which... SGML which? Okay, yes, I didn't. So, UTF-8 Trans. This is a really, really cool one. Um, provided that you have all the components that you need and that you have a need for it. But anyway, what this does is uh, it, it translates UTF-8 to some... So, any uh, a UTF-8 character, it can translate that character into some other representation. All you need is a character map, and character maps aren't super hard to. It's not exactly rocket science. Like it's it's actually pretty simple. So you could, if you needed to, you could you could create one of these for yourself. It's just it's really a, a list of of some kind of character um, encoding or a character representation, followed by the the the, the way that you want the character to be represented in in whatever format you're looking to convert to. So for instance, let's say we're writing something in ROF, and we realize that we want to have an INYE in our documentation, or that we that we have an INYE in our documentation, but we're outputting to ROF, so we, we want to make sure that there's a, a the correct translation. Uh, so I'll do echo quote INYE, close quote. Oh, I accidentally did a capital in. I wanted the lowercase n. There we go. Uh, and then pipe that to UTF-8 trans, and then we need to point it to a character map, which uh, some some of these do come with Linux doc tools, so that's what I'll use. Slash user, slash share, slash docbook, 2x, slash carmaps, slash roth dot carmap. Hit return, and it gives me a forward, or a, rather a backslash, parentheses, tilde, n. And that, I'm assuming, on on pure faith here, that that's the representation of an INYE character in ROF. So that's really useful, and I'm telling you, things really ramp up here at the end. So now we're at XML2PO, and we, we mentioned, I think, we talked a little bit about PO a couple of episodes back, where we were looking at some translation tools or something, and PO is a uh, I forget what it stands for, if I ever even knew. But it is a file used for translation in applications. So if you've got an application, you've got a, a nice little GUI, you've got a button that says, um, I don't know, cancel. You realize, well, not everyone's going to know what cancel means. So it's easy enough for you, during compilation or something, to, to detect the the system language and then swap out that one string so that it says something else in some other language. But there are a lot of languages out there and obviously one of the strengths of open source is that everyone can chip in. So you could have potentially, what, 3,000 different people translating your application and obviously that's that's not sustainable if you're going to try to do that in your own little make file or a sed script or something. So the PO files are a way to format your translatable strings in a predictable way that then you can integrate it into your build process such that when someone builds a certain language, your compiler can just pull out those strings from this translation file and put it where they need to go. This XML2PO translates a, um, a freeform XML document 
and outputs git text compatible pot files. So I just ran it against um, just a, but actually, you know what? I, I ran it against a whole book file, but I, I guess really it might be better for me to trans or to to run it against just my little example.xml file. Um, yeah, about the same really, but it, it detects the the tags and it extracts those the the strings between those tags and lays it out in a predictable way with line numbers and um, the boilerplate header and and all the stuff that you would need in a pot file or a po file rather so very very useful again for um for real life stuff you know stuff that you actually need uh to do possibly as a programmer who's trying to program for stuff um around the world all right so you remember the sgml conditional application well there is a similar application for xml called xml if written by the same person actually eric Eric S. Raymond, and uh, it is XML if just looks through your XML and filters out uh, what looks more normal to me. Um, square, uh, not square bracket, uh, angle bracket, question mark, XML if, and then if, question, uh, yeah, question mark, angle bracket. And you've got elif statements, and you've got else statements. Uh, and so, yeah, you can, you can do, you can do all manner of um, parsing or, or processing rather pre-processing uh, such that you get you you get the results of of XML depending on on something and that something could be um, could, could be a string that you're looking for uh, it could be uh, some kind of you know a specific build or a version number I guess um, I think more often than not when I, I've seen this used for a um, an internal build of something and a release build. You'll have like little statements in your XML that says, "Hey, if if this is release, then print this copyright notice or 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 print this um, this product name." Whereas in the internal build, you'll be using your uh, the the project code name, that sort of thing. So this is really really handy to have XML if, um, and I say that that it's handy, but honestly, it's not something that I've actually ever used. I mean, I have used it, but only when um, only only at like work. I've never used it in real life. Um, but it is it is quite handy because that is one of the cool things about XML is that you can have a little bit of logic in there, and that's that's exciting to be able to have conditional logic in your markup. That's pretty cool. So let's let's create such a document really quick. Um, first, we'll do uh, Emacs example dot uh, XML rather, and we'll do the normal preamble of XML version 1.0, encoding UTF-8, docbook article public, and so on. And then we'll open up our article elements, and we'll put some article info in there, and then we'll do section. We don't need anything fancy there, just section title. We'll call it example. Close the title, and then we'll do one of these fancy conditional XML if statements. So that's square bracket, not square bracket, angle bracket, question mark, XML if space if space condition equals single quote HTML close quote. Actually, you know what? Let's just do this quote foo close quote uh, question mark close angle bracket, and then we'll put in para issue this text if foo is true. And then close that para, and then we'll close our XML if statement. So angle bracket question mark XML if space fi if spelled backwards question mark uh, angle bracket close section close article. Very simple little docbook XML document there. Didn't even have to be docbook honestly. I, I didn't have to do that. I, I did that out of habit. And then we'll do a cat of example.xml. Pipe that th to XML if space condition equals foo. So the foo is now true. So we should see this this uh, text, and we do. I see that um, that my my para issue this text if foo is true is visible. Well, we don't know if that's necessarily that it's working or that it's just catting the 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 contents. So we'll change the condition to bar now. So cat XML or example rather dot XML pipe XML if condition equals bar return. And I have everything but that sentence. I have my boilerplate. I have my article information information. I've got my title. I've got the closing section and this closing article. The, the, the part between that XML if does not print. That doesn't print out. And now we could of course, you know, pipe this to something else as well. 
um, and then we would, we, you know, we could convert it through one of those other applications in Linux doc tools, and, and we would have everything except that conditional. So that's really, really neat. That's a really handy little pipe type application. Again, I don't actually use it in real life all that often, or rather ever in real life, but I, I, I could see myself using it in real life. Maybe not all that often, but, um, but I could, I could see it, I could see it being something useful. That's a, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of that one. Okay, last but not least is XML2. That's XMLTO. This is actually just a shell script, apparently. I never knew that until, um, until recently. It, it's just a shell script, and it is, um, it's a really useful one because it uses a bunch of these sort of alternate converters to produce some, a, a really good collection of of options, which frankly, I think in the past I would have, well, in the past I did, I just, I kind of thought, well, if I have XML, I need to, I need to put it through XSLT proc. Like that was my only conversion option for a very, very long time because it was the only one I knew. When I started using Publican, I found XML too, because that's what they used for Publican. Publican, by the way, is the Fedora Project's um, docbook conversion system. Uh, really, like you could probably argue, no, actually, I was going to argue for a moment that it was just basically a bunch of style sheets and a framework. But it is, it's actually a framework. It's got, they've, it does a lot now that I'm, I'm thinking back. Um, I used, I got to use Publican in real life. Well, no, not in real, in real life by choice. And then at work at one point, I got to use it for a little while. Um, sadly, it was a little bit hidden behind a, um, a make file. Um, a big set of make files, so I never really got to interact directly with Publican all as much as I probably would have wanted to. But it was it, it was really nice to be able to use it uh, for for something you know on the professional level. Quite liked it. Uh, I'm not using it now because it it kind of is overkill for what I do, uh, and I just kind of scaled it back and just went to raw docbook, which has been serving me serving me a little bit better. But XML2 is a really nice quick, let's call it low overhead, um, alternative to XSLT proc. And the way that it works is that you give it, well, you type in XML2, that's the name of the command, and then you provide this, I mean, there are options, which I can get into in a moment, but um, basically you give it the format that you want to have output for you, and then you give it the XML file that you want it to convert for you. So XML2 space TXT space example.xml, for example, gives me a file called example.txt, and sure enough, there's my example XML file as plain text, not as XML. And the beauty there is that it's just such a simple little command. I mean, it, it really is. XML2, uh, let's do, let's do something crazy, like, um, have, uh, let's do, all right, talk to me into it, example.xml as an EPUB. Now, you know that, I mean, EPUBs are, are relatively, they're trivial to make, you know, relative to something like a proprietary ebook format that you can't make, but there's a lot going on in an EPUB. Uh, they're, they're, it's not it's not necessarily the easiest thing uh, to to generate because there's XML table of contents, there's HTML um, actual content. It's all in a zip file, and there needs to be a special uncompressed header in front of that zip file, and so on. I used to make EPUBs by hand, so that's kind of how I know all of that stuff off the top of my head. Now XML2.EPUB does it for me. So XML2 EPUB example.xml spits out an example.epub, which we can open with whatever EPUB reader you prefer to um, to use. And there it is. Simple, very brief little EPUB. And and it does a lot more. I mean, it does, it, it converts to um, FO, which is a midway step to PDFs. It goes directly out to PDF. It does SVG, XHTML, no chunks, HTML, no chunks, MAN, DVI, Java help files, all kinds of stuff. It's just, it's it's endless and it's really, really easy. And like I said, um, there are options that you can use. So for instance, no auto size, don't auto detect the paper size. I don't know why you would ever want that, but it was what caught my eye just now. Um, the one that I'm, that I actually use, oh, well, here's a good one actually, dash dash skip dash validation. I have to admit sometimes that is a really nice option to have. One shouldn't be using it, but 
but sometimes one does, doesn't one? Um, and it, it's really nice because sometimes, yes, you have a validation error, but for whatever reason you need to see something rendered, maybe it's to help you find the validation error, who knows? But skip validation, very nice option. But the one that I actually use more often than not is dash dash string param, and then you give it a, a parameter name equals some parameter value. What that does for you is if you are creating a if you're converting from XML and you need to set some property for uh, for styling, then the XSL style sheets have string parameters, or they have parameters anyway. And I don't know why it's actually called string param. I think I, I think in in XSLT proc, I think it's just well, maybe it is string param. Maybe that's what they're called. Either way, they're parameters that you can define. So it might be, I don't know, um, chapter.heading equals 1 or equals 0. I don't think that's a real one, but it's something like that uh, can control whether you your chapters get a chapter 1, chapter 2, or if it's just the title of the chapter. That's one of those things you can just switch on and off. And maybe you um, maybe you want to control that separately. Maybe you want that to be true for... Uh, your EPUBs, or, or rather false for your EPUBs, but true for your, um, I don't know, HTML, something like that, or actually that would be, yeah, so true for your EPUB, but false, no, false for your EPUB, true for your PDF, how's that? Um, or, or And it doesn't have to be chapter heading, obviously, it can be other things too, I mean, and, and you can define them yourself as well. I've got a couple of XSL style sheets where I define some some variables, and depending on what you pass into a string param, the, a different copyright notice, or rather licensing notice as the case may be, gets printed at the bottom of the page. Sometimes it might be, you know, it might default to Creative Commons 4.0 or something, but if you pass a special parameter, a string param, you might be, you, you might get um, GNU FDL or uh, OGL, something like that. So that's, it's really useful to have that as an option, and it's something that I use. That's the one that I use in real life pretty much, not all the time, but yeah, that's a, that's one that I, that I, that I keep close. You can also issue a dash X to point it to a specific style sheet, which is helpful, because by default, it's going to use whatever default docbook.xsl you have on your system, which somewhere in user share, um, docbook, xsl, or whatever. Um, if you have your own, which I typically, not, yeah, no, I'm going to say typically. I typically do have my own XSL, and I keep that locally in my project directory because that's, you know, I, I commit it, I track it with Git and commit it to my Git repository with all the rest of the sources. So I can have the XSL, I can point to it with dash X, point to it the, my, my own custom XSL, and have it process that differently than it would with its default docbook XSL. So XML2 is really, really nice. If you find, if you decide to delve into the exciting world of XML, and you decide then, well, no, I guess if you decide to delve into the exciting world of XML, consider XML2, and that is XMLTO, remember, it's not XML the number two, that's um, that's probably referring to libxml2 if, if you're looking for the number. XMLTO, XML2, um, is, a, is a great, great conversion script. Just, if, if, if you don't want to have to think too much about how things are getting from one format to another, just use XML2. Trust me, it'll make your life very, very easy. I've used it very frequently. I, I quite like it. Um, the reason I don't default to it, I think, is because I have, th- th- there's, um, a high degree of familiarity with XSLT proc for me, and the options, I have a lot of those options kind of embedded uh, either in my brain or in a make file, and so it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem worth, like, switching to XML2, like, there's not really a reason to do that. Uh, however, if I'm doing something sort of off the cuff, and all I need is a quick render of something, and I don't care about the style. XML2 is definitely my go-to. I guess what I'm saying is it's my quick fix command, and, and it is it is nice too because XSLT proc understand all it does is apply the XSL to an XML document. That's its only function. XML2 will do that, and then also invoke you know some other thing to get you out to your final destination quicker. That's not always what I want with XSLT proc, and that's why I don't always use XML2. Sometimes I want to just apply the XSLT, or the, the XSL rather, and, um, and and then, you know, process it separately with some other tool to end up in some other format. That's, that's perfectly acceptable. Other times I just want to get to that format quickly. XML2 is the way to that. 
to that format. So keep that in mind. Use XML2 if, if you have a need for it. That's it. That's that's Linux doc tools. We're done. We're done with that package. And um, that's great. It's a good package. It's really fun documentation stuff, but um, I think it's it's fine to be finished with it. I think we're we're in a good place now that we're done. We can continue with whatever's next. What is next anyway? Well, I guess we'll find out next week. Talk to you then. Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.